Good morning, church. As we enter the Advent season, we're going to kind of change some of the passages we're reading from. So we're out of Exodus and into Isaiah. You can see it on the screen there, Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. In your pew Bible, it's going to be page 575. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lay down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who stands as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Well, welcome to Advent at Grace. We are glad that you're here this morning. As Nathan said, we've been in, in Exodus, but we're, we're jumping out of Exodus and into a couple passages in Isaiah for the next couple weeks, and then from there we'll move into the New Testament our sermon series over the next four weeks or so is called A Weary World Rejoices. And we just sang that, didn't we? Oh, Holy Night has that lyric in it. The thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. We live in a weary world, don't we? All you got to do is turn on the news. And you can see the weariness, the weariness all around us. As I said in my prayer, violence, shootings, mental health issues, war in Ukraine, Afghanistan, financial stress and trouble, inflation, hatred, depravity, racism. And then there's your own personal life, your own personal weariness, loss, loss of loved ones, loss of health, loss of job, loss of status, temptations, addictions, relational struggles. And so we wait and we long. That's what Advent means. Advent means arrival or coming, but it has taken on the idea of waiting, waiting for the arrival. The arrival of what? The arrival of who? Well, obviously, in the context of Christmas, it's the arrival of the baby Jesus. And yet, as Christians, we are still living in an advent, aren't we? We are still awaiting 
the arrival of Christ to make all things right. This morning, we want to talk about the promise of new beginnings from Isaiah 11, 1 to 10. Have you ever looked forward to a new beginning? I'm sure you have. You get out of middle school and you're going to high school. All things are new. You get out of high school, college. Finally, you get out of college, I can start my career. It's all new. You get your career, if you're a millennial or younger, you do that for like two and a half years, right? That was a joke, sorry. And then it's the next career. Three years later, the next career. Three years later, the next career. And so on and so on. Because we need something new. Finally get that new car that doesn't break down every other week. You move into that new house. You get that new boyfriend or that new girlfriend. Everybody loves a new beginning, don't they? We all look forward to new things. That's what this prophecy is all about. That's what Isaiah 11 is all about. A cosmic do-over. A brand new beginning. Humanity has always wondered, how does the world end? Will it be aliens? Zombies? A pandemic? Too soon? How will the world end? The ancients thought that eventually the gods would just get so frustrated with each other, there would be this great big battle. The ancient Egyptians thought eventually the sea will overwhelm the earth and everything will be wiped out. Lucretius, the Roman philosopher, came along about 75 years before Jesus, and he's what we call an atomist. He believed everything's just natural, everything just boils down to atoms, and eventually all the atoms are going to explode, and that will be the end of the world. Hindus believe in reincarnation. We start over, we start over, we start over, we start over, but we don't carry any of our past experiences with us. We don't carry any memory with us. And so let me ask you, do any of these make a weary world rejoice? That everything's just going to blow up, or global warming will do us in, or solar flares, or whatever, or that we just reincarnate and reincarnate without there being any memory of the previous life and thus no justice and no glory, does any of that make us say, in this weary world, I rejoice? As Christians, we have a different doctrine. Christians say we are not waiting for our end but for our beginning. We're not waiting on our ending, we're waiting on our beginning. After Christ, several hundred years, of course, came the Enlightenment. During the Enlightenment, thinkers took some Christian thought and some humanist thought, and they smushed it together, and they said, we will bring about perfection as a, as a species. 
as mankind, we will make things better and better. The United States was born out of the Enlightenment. Our Constitution says that we're going to create a more perfect union. I'm not sure if we've done that. The 20th century came along and and put a pretty big glitch in the thought that mankind can bring about perfection. World War I, World War II, the Holocaust, all kinds of tyrannical leadership. But at the end of the day, we are children of the Enlightenment, especially here in the West. We believe that we are getting better and better, that we can make things better and better. Here in America, we have conservatives and we have liberals. Conservatives say we need to make progress, slow, steady progress towards becoming better and better, whereas liberals say, no, it hasn't been good enough. We need a revolution to make things better and better. So take, for example, race relations. Conservatives in this country will say, look at all the progress we have made. And liberals will say, it's not enough. We need to burn it down and start over. Here's the problem. Both are depending on mankind to bring about lasting change. And that is not the promise of Isaiah 11. The Christian says, the Christian who understands Scripture says, here's what's going to happen. Things are going to get worse and worse and worse until all of a sudden they get way, way better. So, let me ask you a question if you're sitting here this morning. What is your future? Do you ever ponder this? I don't know what I'm doing tomorrow, Brady. I I don't… Okay, I'm not talking about tomorrow. I'm talking about after you die. Do you ever ponder, what's next? Is it an ending? Will it be an ending for you or will it be a beginning? Will your death be a transformation or will it be a stagnation? Will you be gloriously transformed or will you be left to stay as you are forever? I think we call that hell. What is your future? What do you believe about your future? What's your life after life? What's your life after death? What's coming? Do you know? I beg you to know. I implore you to find out. And I implore you to look at Christ as the answer. Look at the prophecies this prophecy of Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, look at this prophecy with me and ask yourself, do I want this to be my story? Do I want this to be my destiny? I pray that you will. I pray that you will. So, what do we do with these these prophecies about Christ? Three responses, three lessons. Lesson number one, Rejoice in the promise of a new ruler. Let's rejoice in the promise of a new ruler. 
We're good at, we're good at this as Americans. We, re, we, we hope in the promise of a new ruler. Like, like I said, every two years or every four years or every six years, whoever we're electing, we re, we, it brings this hope. Like, okay, now this is the most important election of our lifetime. And if we get the right person in, hope, peace, joy. Oh. Let's look at the real true ruler. 11, verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Little background. The nation of Israel, the nation of Israel, we've been in Exodus, so let's fast forward. They come out of Egypt, they make it into the promised land. Israel, the nation where the nation of Israel is. Come into that and they have a king, King Saul. Then comes King David. Then comes King Solomon. And after King Solomon, blitz. Israel to the north, Judah to the south. The kings of Israel are wicked, wicked, and more wicked. God chops down Israel. Isaiah has already said that. He uses the nation Assyria to, chapter 10, he says, you could send your child out to count the trees and they would be able to do it because I've cut down so many trees. Okay, so now chapter 11, a stump, another stump, but this one's of Jesse. So now we're talking about Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah. Jesse is the father of King David. The imagery of the stump speaks death to us. It speaks ending. It speaks no more. Useless. We grind these up, don't we? We yank them out. The stump, though, has... Am I supposed to change this? Yeah. Excuse me, everybody. Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> hey, how are we doing? <laughs> Can you hear me? Uh, we'll see if that's better. Maybe not. Okay. Stumps. Stumps. The stump of Jesse. Babylon is going to come in and cut down the Davidic kings. They're going to be conquered and dragged away. But there's hope. With this stump, there's hope. Because what is there? There's a shoot. There's a branch. He uses those two words. There's a shoot, there's a branch. Okay. So, it's not over for good. There's hope in the judgment. But who, what are we talking about here? What is this shoot and branch growing out of our stump? Verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall be upon, what's the next word? Him. The Spirit of the Lord will be upon Him. It's a person. It's a person. The stump of Jesse is a person. <laughs> the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him. Not a system, not a program. Not a law, not a constitution, a person. 
the Spirit of the Lord. And we're introduced to this, what, what we call the sevenfold Spirit of the Lord. There are seven descriptors of the Spirit in this verse. He's the Spirit of the Lord, of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. The sevenfold Spirit of the Lord is upon this person. This ruler, this branch out of Jesse, he is of Yahweh. Remember Yahweh in the burning bush, Exodus 3? This king has the nature and character of God himself. He has wisdom. He knows how life is supposed to live. He has understanding. He can see a specific situation and see the hidden realities in it and understand the specifics of every situation. He has the spirit of counsel. He makes perfect plans. Every plan he ever makes is going to be perfect. And, he does, and he's not only smart, the first three words, he's powerful. He has the spirit of might. Not only can he make a great plan, he can carry it out. He has the power and the ability to see it through. He has the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He knows Yahweh. He has an intimate relationship with Yahweh, and he respects Yahweh. He loves Yahweh, and he respects, admires, and is in awe of Yahweh. That's who this ruler is. Look at how his, his rule plays out. Verse 4, with righteousness, he judges the poor, equity for the meek. So the first couple phrases, he's helping the poor and the meek, and yet the second half of the verse, he strikes the wicked with his breath, with his mouth, with his breath, he kills the wicked. Verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, faithfulness the belt of his loins. The belt implies that he's always ready. You would gird up your loins for battle, right? You tie that belt, it would bring your hem up so that you're ready to… This ruler is always ready. He never catches him sleeping, he doesn't take a vacation. And he's girded with righteousness and faithfulness. In other words, he's not going to settle for second best. He's not going to let it slide by. He's not going to let it be okay. It's going to be righteous. And he's going to be faithful to his people to make sure that they live in a righteous kingdom. There won't need to be lawyers. There won't need to be police officers. There won't need to be briefs filed and, and appellate courts. Because he will judge everything fair and equitably and righteously. Who is this person? <laughs> Who on earth is Isaiah talking about? Does he even know who he's talking about? Maybe it's King Hezekiah. That's, 
Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah prophesied during really bad King Ahaz and then really good King Hezekiah, or pretty good King Hezekiah. But we know this isn't just about Hezekiah. Look at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse… I'm sorry, no, Isaiah, Isaiah, you got it wrong. Shoot of Jesse. Shoot of Jesse. No, root of Jesse. Well, wait, in verse 1, he was the shoot. Now he's the root. So what are you saying? Well, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying he's from Jesse and Jesse's from him. I'm saying he's after Jesse and he's before Jesse. How can a human being be after somebody and before somebody at the same time? Because this is no mere human being, is it? This is how the angel explained it to Mary. When the angel came to Mary, this is Luke chapter 1, he will be great, talking about the baby that will be inside her. He will be great and will be called the son of who? The most high, the son of God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. He's the son of God and the son of David. He's the root and the shoot. That's our king. That's our king. Lesson two, let's not just rejoice in the promise of a new ruler. Let's rejoice in the promise of a whole new world. Isaiah's prophecy goes on to show us how the whole earth is restored and transformed at the same time. Think about the stump with the branch. Still the stump, but there's something new. There's something new. It's the same, but it's different. It's the same, but it's different. Look at verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fat and calf together, and a little child shall lead them. This is ridiculous. This is, this is like a kid's story. Bunnies and foxes solving crimes together. That doesn't happen. D.H. Lawrence, the British writer, said, no absolute is going to make the lion lie down with the lamb unless the lamb is inside the lion. (laughs) Maybe that's how you feel today. This is fantasy. This is a fairy tale. This is ridiculous. Lions and and cows, bears and cows, panthers and, and sheep. They don't live together. They don't live together. What if they were intended to live together? You tell the lion that he's, for eternity he's going to eat grass instead of antelope, he's going to say, that's hell, not heaven, unless he was actually meant to eat grass. And what he's doing now is the curse. Is that possible? It's possible. How? How will, 
how will the world change like this? A little child shall lead them. A little child shall lead them. Isaiah has already introduced us to the little child. In chapter 7, he spoke about the promise of a child that would be born to a virgin. I give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive. In chapter 9, he'll call him the son that is given. For unto us a son is born. Unto us a child is given. Who is the child that will lead us into this utopia, into this state where lions and lambs live together? Who will break the curse? The little child will break the curse. Look at verse 8. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. The weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. This is not the first time we've seen a verse with a baby and a snake in it. Genesis 3.15, do you remember? As soon as Adam and Eve sin, God shows up and he pronounces this over humanity. He looks at the woman, Eve, and he says, your child, your offspring will be at enmity with the serpent and the serpent with your child and you're going to try to destroy each other. But do you see, and that's the curse, do you see it? One day there will be no more curse. Babies will pick up cobras. Children will play with snakes. Is that your future? Listen, Christian, listen to me carefully. There's much confusion about this. Many get it wrong. Jesus Christ's rule on earth will give to us a restored physical planet. We have a physical hope, not just a spiritual hope. We have a physical hope along with a spiritual hope. We are not going to spend eternity up in heaven as angels floating on clouds playing harps. We're going to spend eternity on a physical earth with a physical Jesus, with physical lions and physical lambs and snakes. What that means is, you say, okay, well, who, who cares? What that means is, everything you've been through, every trial, tribulation, everything that's been taken from you, even in the physical, will be restored to you. There are no mistakes. There, everything has meaning and purpose in Christ's reign. This is called the new creation. The new creation, a branch out of a stump, same but different. The lion is still a lion, but he's different. Jesus rose from the dead. Was he still Jesus? Did he still have a body? Did he still eat food? Could you touch him? But was he different? Yeah, he was different. He like disappeared and stuff. He walked through walls. He was same but different. You're going to be same but different. The whole earth will be same but different. And not just the natural world, but the hearts of all mankind. Verse 9, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
It's not just the physical earth that's being changed, it's our hearts. No more hurting. No more destroying each other. God's holy mountain. God's holy mountain means anywhere God is. Eden was God's holy mountain. Sinai became God's holy mountain. Zion became God's holy mountain. Heaven is God's holy mountain. Wherever God is, people won't hurt and destroy each other. Wherever God rules and reigns, people don't hurt and harm each other. This is what we have to look forward to. We all live in the full knowledge of the Lord. We will all experience His kingdom of love and mercy and grace and justice. Chains shall He break, for the slave is my brother. That's what's coming. That's what's coming. When, Brady, when? When will this happen? Well, no one knows the day or time, right? And in Christian theology, there's different ideas about what Isaiah 11 is talking about. One thing we can see, look back again at verse 10, we can see Jesus first coming in this verse, can't we? In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire. The wise men. The wise men inquired, it it says that word (laughs) in Matthew, they came to Herod and they inquired, where, where's, and his resting place shall be glorious, the manger, Angel, angel Gloria, and glory in the highest, right? You remember? <laughs> so, the first coming of Christ, but clearly the first coming of Christ did not accomplish all of Isaiah 11, did it? Jesus never judged a court case for those 30-plus years. Rome still ruled over His people, virtually enslaving them. Animals still ate each other. Snakes still bit kids. So when will this happen? We know it's not fully realized. How do we know? Because the weary world around us. The weary world. So what about Christ's second coming? Some see in this a millennial reign of Christ. The book of Revelation speaks of a thousand-year reign of Christ where He rules on His holy mountain, Mount Zion. He rules from a new temple in Jerusalem. That's a good interpretation. I have no problems with that. Others see, they just jump ahead to the return, the second coming of Christ and the new heavens and the new earth when when Jesus just gives the whole universe a a do-over. That's a good, legitimate interpretation as well. Here's the bottom line, Christian. Here's the bottom line. Jesus, here's what you have to believe. Jesus is coming back. And He's going to fix everything. We can argue about all the rest of the details. But Jesus is coming back. 
and he's going to fix everything, isn't he? In the new beginning, Jesus will take everything from this life and make it glorious. Do you believe that? This is what gives life meaning. Look, look, if life is just a series of events where eventually all the atoms explode or the sun melts and we freeze or the sun blows up and we burn, whichever, pick your poison. If that's what life is, then life, at the end of the day, if you're intellectually honest, life has no meaning. If life is just reincarnation after reincarnation, where what you do in this life bumps you up in the next life, but you don't have any memory of what you did in the last life, so you don't know that you're a better person, (laughs) that has no meaning, does it? That actually doesn't really give life any meaning. But what if everything in this life, what if everything in this life is a prequel that explains the real book, the real story that is yet to come? What if every detail of your life Jesus is going to take, not throw it away, not erase it, not get, He's going to take it and He's going to weave it into something glorious and beautiful for eternity? What if that's the case? What if the stump becomes a branch? What if the stump of your life He's going to turn into a new branch. What if that's what's going to happen? Well, then everything we do in this life suddenly matters, doesn't it? Everything has meaning. Everything has purpose. Okay, Brady, I'm with you. I'm with you. But how do I know? How do I know all this is going to happen? Number three, rejoice in the promise of being the new creation now. You ever go to the movies and see the previews? Right? right? Everybody, some of, you, some of you get there late to skip the previews. I like the previews. <laughs> there used to be this channel on TV called Coming Attractions Channel, and they would just show movie previews like all day. It's like my favorite channel. <laughs> Christian, you are the coming attraction. Church, we're the preview. We're not the movie, but we're the preview of the movie. Look, don't, don't, don't mishear me over this next third point. We are not living in the fullness of the kingdom of God yet. Wolves and lambs aren't hanging out, are they? Number two, this is important. It is not our job as the church to make Christ's kingdom come. That's that's been a doctrine in the church for years. We do not hold to that doctrine. Jesus isn't waiting for us to figure it out and get it right and start being well enough behaved that he can come down and save us. We do not usher in the kingdom through our good works. Okay? But... Having said those two things, but we are the preview of the kingdom. We are the coming attraction that the world looks at, and when they see the church, they should say, I want in. If that's just the preview, if that's just the two minutes, give me the three-hour movie. That's what we should be. 
Paul put it this way, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. That's, this is mind-blowing. If you, if you knew theology, Jewish theology, Greek theology, you would hear Paul say this and go, that's, no, that's insane. That's Zootopia, man. That's a fantasy. You, we, we are not now the new creation. And Paul's saying, yes, you are. You are already what you will be. What? What on earth? So how do we know that one day Christ will reign on earth? We look to ourselves as the preview. We look, look, how do I know that Christ will reign on earth? I, I know here's, here's the, what the answer should be, and it is, it is. Here's the answer. The Bible says so, <laughs> okay? Yes, I believe that with all my heart. <laughs> the Bible says so. But listen, when we look at ourselves, when we look at the church, what's happening inside of you? What's happening with the other Christians around you? It should make you say, oh, there's more coming. There's more coming. I've seen Mark change. I've seen Mark grow. That's not meaningless, is it? Like I'm being serious. That's not meaningless, is it? We saw, people, we saw people who received Christ get baptized and stand up there and declare faith in Christ. That's not meaningless, is it? That's a preview. It's a preview. It's a coming attraction to something better. What, what, what is Christ called in Isaiah? He's called a branch out of a stump. Church, listen to me. Just for the next few minutes, just listen to me. Christ is the branch. He's the plant. He's the shoot. Listen to how Paul describes us. Ephesians 3, so that Christ, listen Christian, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts, that you Christian, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. What is he saying? He's saying we are rooted in love. We are rooted in Christ. Christ became the stump, didn't he? Christ's love took him from heaven to earth where he was chopped down on that cross. And everybody left him for dead. They said, no, but it's done. Even the disciples, even though they buried him, even though they cleaned him up, they went and they hid and they went in a room and they said, now what are we going to do? And two of them are walking and they're saying, we thought this was the guy, but he's clearly not. Little did they know they were talking to the stump, <laughs> to the branch. And now we are connected to his stump of love. We are the branch that grows out of it. And here's the beauty of it. Oh, it's so, so slow, isn't it? so slow, that little green branch growing out of that big stump. But do we love each other a little bit more this year than we did last year? Church, do we? I mean, I think we do. <laughs> I think we do. Are we a little bit more united this year than we were 10 years ago? Like, is, is something happening? Is there growth? Isaiah says that this, God, this, this ruler has the sevenfold spirit of God. The sevenfold spirit of God. Listen to what Paul says about us in Ephesians 1. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom 
and revelation and the knowledge of Him, that your hearts may be enlightened and you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. And listen, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He will put all things under Christ's feet, and He gave Christ as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Christian, what if I looked at you and said, you too have the sevenfold Spirit of God? What? I do? Christian, if you have Christ, you have all the wisdom you need in this world. You have all the understanding you need. You have all the counsel you need, all the might you need, all the knowledge of God, and all the fear of God you need. You have it. That's what Paul's saying. Do you believe that? I think we just call it faith. I think we just boil it down and we say faith, right? Do you live by faith? He says… In Isaiah 11, he says that one day we're going to live on God's holy mountain. Listen to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, innumerable angels, festal gathering, the assembly of the firstborn, the, the, to God, to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. No more violence. In my holy mountain, they, they'll no longer harm each other or do destruction. We come to a mountain with a better word than the blood of Abel. We come to where the blood sprinkles us clean, you're there. You're there right now. You're sitting here on the mountain right now. You live there. In Isaiah 11, he says that natural enemies will dwell together, prey and predator, wolf and lamb. In Ephesians 2, it says, he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. We're the preview Look around you. We're not supposed to get along. I mean, seriously. I walk around this church, one, on one hand I'm having a conversation with somebody who's so far over here, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. And then over here I talk to some other person, and they're so far over here, total, and I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and we all come in the same room and we worship together. Isn't that crazy? Men and women aren't supposed to get along. The races aren't supposed to get along. Slave and free aren't supposed to get along. Rich and poor aren't supposed to get along. And yet in Christ we do. 
We'll end with this scripture. Romans 15. Paul talking to the church. Obviously, this is after Christ's death and resurrection. And he says, again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. And then he says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Listen, how do I know that Christ is going to rule one day? Because I abound in hope. I abound in hope. The root is going to come. The root is going to come. He who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Do you abound in hope this morning? Do you have all peace and joy in believing? If you don't, today's a great day to start. Today's a great day to ask yourself, what is, what is my hope for the next life? What's my future? If your hope is not in Christ, if your hope is not in this ruler, this root, this shoot, this branch, if your hope is not in Him, the one who lived and died in your place, then your life is meaningless. But if your hope is in Christ, then may we all who claim His name, abound in that hope. Let's pray. Jesus, You are the ruler. You are the child that leads us. You are the man who leads us. You are the king who leads us. From the throne of heaven and from the throne of our hearts, from the throne of this church, lead us. Be our curse breaker. Be our wisdom. Be our understanding, our counsel, our might, our knowledge, our fear of the Lord. Would you be that for us today? May your cross be that for us today. Jesus, for any that don't know you, for any that would say, I I don't know, I don't know what happens after this. I'm hoping my good outweighs my bad or something. God, for anybody who's thinking that, I just, I pray that today would be the day that they turn their heart to you. As we're about to sing, may each of us prepare you, Jesus, room in our hearts. We ask this in your name. Amen.